You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we survey the books of the Bible one book at a time. I'm Drew Kaiser, and I have with me today, as usual, my constant companion, Andrew Kingsley. Yes, uh, always with me. Always here. Always. Always here. Uh, and, I, and I'm glad. I like it. Yeah, sounds like it. Um, we are in episode two of a multi-episode series on the Book of Romans. Last episode, we introduced the book and went through verse 17 of chapter 1, which is the thesis or main main verse of the book, The Righteous Shall Live by Faith. Now we're ready to get into the meat of this doctrinal section of Romans that ranges from chapters 1 to chapter 11 or so. Yeah. So, uh... I don't have much more to say on that. I'll turn it over to Andrew, who's going to handle our reading for this episode. I started to say this morning. Yeah, it could be morning, afternoon, or evening. Yeah, I'm trying to use the podcast lingo, and sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's difficult. Yeah, yeah. We maybe we should just stick to Bible stuff, but we'll well actually we'll go ahead and we'll get into that now. Uh, we're going to start in chapter 1 and verse 18, and we're going to go all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20. So we're taking on a pretty big um, chunk of the letter here. And like you said, Drew, this gets into the meat of the letter. We're getting into the actual ideas here. And the first idea that we have really is bad news, I guess. In this first section, Paul has given us the explanation for why we need salvation. Uh, in the case of the cross, the good news is only necessary on account of the bad news. It's the sinful state of man, really, that leads us into the need for a Savior. Uh, there's a great quote here. We cannot appreciate the wonder of God's grace and love until we truly understand God's righteous anger against sin. We cannot appreciate God's forgiveness until we appreciate the eternal consequences of sin. Uh, I think the key verse for this section uh, before we start kind of outlining it and taking it apart section by section, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, I think if you want to take one thing away from what is this section of Scripture about, here it is. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. There will be tribulation and distress for every person who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. You probably recognize that from the first lesson we did on Romans. Yeah, I think we even talked a little bit about the implications of that in the yeah. think section. Yeah, we talked about the, uh, you know, the I guess the, it's not a pecking order, but we're going to see a few things about Jews and Greeks in this episode. But he's going to, you know, he said in the first part, or last week at least, the Jews and the Greeks can be saved. And now he's saying, well, the Jews and the Greeks need to be saved because they're both in sin. And he does that first by revealing, here's our first point in the outline, is the wrath of God against the Gentiles. The key verse there being verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And we're probably talking about Gentiles here. There's a lot of evidence for it because uh, he goes on to say, you know, uh, they can know about God from the creation. Uh, there's two reasons that God brings his wrath upon the Gentiles. And first is because the suppression of truth. Look in verses 24 and 25. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, 
to the dishonoring of the of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And in the verses leading up to this, Paul explains they can know who God is through creation. Those are verses I'm sure everybody is familiar with. Uh, Verse 20. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What can be known about God is made plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes are, uh, they can be clearly perceived in the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So even though they had the evidence for God in creation, they chose to suppress the truth and to worship the creature rather than the creator. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is talking about idolatry, right? Right. Yeah, things that uh, you and I, I guess, is still fresh in our mind from Jeremiah. Uh, right. Talking about all yeah. the idolatry. Most definitely. Yeah, and the folly that comes along with that. So we have uh, the wrath of God against the Gentiles, more specifically against their suppression of truth, and now it's against the suppression of morality. Uh, you can read in verses 28 to 31 what exactly happened to the Gentiles. They didn't want anything to do with God. They wanted to be as far away from him as possible. They wanted to suppress the truth that God was real. This is where it led them. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Not good people. Right. If you want to some bad things in there. Yeah. So the wrath of God is coming against the Gentiles for some pretty obvious reasons here. They have suppressed the truth and they've also suppressed morality. Can I make a note about our translation that we're reading from? Uh, yeah. We're reading from the English Standard Version. And I've noticed that where a lot of translations use the term Gentiles, the ESV sticks with Greeks. Uh, that's in the material we've already covered. And it'll come up, you've already noted a couple of verses in chapter 2 where that comes up. And somebody asked me, this is the reason I'm bringing it up. Somebody asked me just last week, uh, what about the rest of the Gentiles? He mentions the Greek, the Jews and the Greeks. There are a lot of other Gentiles. What about the Chinese and the Indians and the, yeah. uh, you know, people on the continent of Africa? And I, I believe Greek is like a, a figure of speech, a, a way of talking about the Gentiles. Yeah. Because Greek culture was a lot more widespread then than now. Now we think of Athens and, a small yeah. little country in Europe that's bringing the economy down. But this was not too terribly long after Alexander the Great when Jews thought in terms of the rest of the world as Greeks. And I think anytime you read Greeks in this first part of, of Romans, at least, you should think Gentiles. And I just wanted to make that note. Yeah. Because yeah, it's kind of, it's coming up over and over again in our reading. Yeah. So you can think, anytime you hear us read the word Greek, you can think, Certainly just Gentile as a whole. Anybody that's not a Jew yeah, is a good way to think of it. Um, okay, so we have the wrath of God. And then in the second place, we have the judgment of God. And that is coming against Israel. 
You see this in, uh, really it's the entirety of chapter 2. And there's some closing to the thought at the start of chapter 3. But uh, for the sake of our outline, we're going to look at the judgment of God against Israel as chapter 2. And we're going to keep it in chapter 2. Key verses here being verses 1 and 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Quite obviously here, the Jews are guilty of the exact same things the Gentiles are guilty of. I think it's really interesting to note, like we said a second ago, we're fresh out of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah convicted Israel of all their sin. And their sins look exactly like the sins of the Gentiles. Suppressing yeah. the truth about God, exchanging it for a lie. You remember Jeremiah actually said mm-hmm. in chapter 2 that they exchanged the glory of God for that which does not profit. Yeah. So they went after idols, just like the Gentiles did. The Jews did the exact same thing. Right. If uh, he didn't address them, we would know which group he was talking about here. Right. I think their approach to these sins are different, no. as you're. I'm sure you're going to get into, but the approach is... The Gentiles kind of go into it blindly, whereas the Jews go into it hypocritically. Yeah. They know better, and they do it anyway, claiming that they're not doing it. Right. And when we get down to verse 17, that's where we're going to have him, that's where we're going to have Paul really spell out for us that we're talking about the Jews. There are some clues in verses 9 and 10 and 11, which we already read as our key verses for the whole section here today about everyone being subject to God's uh, wrath, really, Jew first and also the Greek. Uh, but when we get to verse 17, he's going to mention, yeah, if you're calling yourself a Jew, uh, you need to act like one. But we are talking about the Jews here. Um, and the judgment of God is coming against Israel. We have three things under this main point. One, it's coming against Israel's sense of entitlement. Uh, the key verses here being chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Interesting to note here, just really quickly, the Jews did have this sense of entitlement, like they were guaranteed access into heaven just because they were in the line of Abraham. There's a lot of clues to that if you read through the Old Testament and if you read through Paul talking about why the old law uh, and why the old uh, system, I guess for lack of a better word, uh, isn't going to save anybody. But it's the heart of the matter. And here he's going to say, look, you're not entitled to God's, the riches of God's uh, kindness and forbearance and patience just because your last name is whatever. You know, just because your yeah. parents were Jews, just because you're in the line of Abraham, that's not going to grant you. Um, old rabbis, actually, there's a statement uh, from a Jewish rabbi from about this time period who says that Abraham sits at the gates of hell and does not allow any Jew to enter. Hmm. So kind of that sense of, you know, no matter Haman? what you do. I wonder if Haman got through there. Yeah, well, according See to... See our series on Esther. Yeah, that's right. It's a little plug yeah, in there. Yeah, there's a plug for our other series. But I, seriously, I mean, surely they knew of Jews who did not get into heaven. 
Haman being an outstanding example, Manasseh. Yeah. yeah. Um, actually, Manasseh may have, he repented. So as yeah. bad as he was, God may have actually allowed him into heaven. But yeah. there were certainly a number of villains in Jewish history. Yeah, I'm thinking of the so kings. Absurd the kings idea. that were... Yeah, there's a know, lot of bad ones. Ahab. Yeah. Jezebel. She wasn't Jewish, but... Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it's, obviously you can see the flaws in that line of thinking. So God's saying, just because you're Jewish, Jewish, you're not going to be saved. Uh, then he also says the judgment is coming against, really, the law. Uh, it's not kind of a weird way to phrase it, but the key verses here are 23 and 24. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles become of you, uh, because of you, rather. So the Jews didn't follow the law, and so the judgment was coming on them for trying to teach others but not doing it themselves. There's that classical hypocritical argument against the Jews. And then finally, the judgment is coming against circumcision, or against the Jews because of circumcision, rather. Uh, The key verses here are verses 28 and 29, and this closes chapter 2. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, uh, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but is from God. And so there he's showing, look, you're so worried about the acts of the law, you're so worried about circumcision, but what about someone who keeps the law that's not circumcised? They're the ones that are really circumcised, because anyone who's a Jew is a Jew inwardly, not merely outwardly. So that wraps up the wrath of God against the Gentiles and the judgment of God against Israel. Then when we get into chapter 3, we're really moving the discussion to an introduction on the righteousness of God. This is really a theme throughout the next several chapters um, about how God's righteousness is revealed. Um, We're going to find that it's revealed from faith. We already talked about from faith, for faith, from faith, to faith. Um, But here we're kind of getting an introduction into the righteousness of God. Uh, The key verse here is going to be verse 4. Where Paul says, let God be of true. chapter 3, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, we're moving into chapter 3 in verse 4. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So he's really trying to show God is right to punish. We're talking about the bad news. Well, what does that say about the righteousness of God? Is he not righteous? Um, shouldn't he just look the other way? Should he just be uh, forgiving to the point of we can do whatever we want? No, uh, because God is righteous. And we'll talk a little more about that in the next section. Uh, but here's a good verse to close on to kind of, um, I guess, tie it off neatly and set us up for the next episode. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Things to keep in mind. Wrath is coming against the Gentiles and Israel. God is righteous for doing this, for bringing this punishment. Every mouth, according to God, against God, is stopped. You got nothing to say. You got no defense to offer because we're all guilty. Yeah, and that was Paul's goal here is to stop mouths Mm -hmm. claiming we're righteous. So he effectively does that, starting with the Gentiles, noting their sins encapsulating them as well as he can, and then moving on to the Jews and pointing out their hypocrisy and self-righteousness and their boasting in the law 
They're boasting in circumcision. And then, you know, in chapter 3, going to the whole human race, uh, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. So he has now wrapped this up in a nice, neat package, creating, hopefully, a longing for a Savior from this evidence that he has laid out so skillfully in this section of Scripture. It's one of the most structured yeah. Uh, passages of scripture that we've encountered so far going through the books of the Bible. So as we come back to dig a little bit deeper into the section, one of the things we want to look at is this phrase that is used about God concerning the Gentiles in chapter 1. Verse 24, it's used, it says, Therefore God gave them up. Then it's used in a verse, it's used again in verse 26. For this reason God gave them up. And then again in verse 28, since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. He gave them up to a debased mind. He gave them up to dishonorable passions. And he gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity. So I guess the question here arises, what did, you know, what did, he gave them up? Like, what do we mean? It's almost he like he's being up? held responsible for their bad behavior. Yeah. I mean, it's the folks that misinterpret this yeah, to like, say that. We're not saying that. Oh, yeah. We're not saying that. But, uh, you know... It's a it's a strange way to talk about their sin and why they are habitual sinners. Yeah, uh, God gave God was behind it. You know, it's kind of the way it's worded, where the he is the he's the one taking the action here. Yeah, um, I think it's really well. Here's what it is: the technical side of it is it's a Greek judicial term, so it's like a courtroom term. And a lot of, we didn't bring that up in the reading because we didn't have time, but a lot of the words that are used in these two chapters, specifically one and two, and then also in chapter three, really, uh, a lot of them are terms that you see in a courtroom. So this is really Paul trying to convict people of being guilty of sin. And this word, interestingly enough, has to do with a judge giving a sentence to a person. Uh Technical definition here being to lord over a prisoner to his sentence. I'm not sure that definition actually makes any sense at all. That's too <laughs> to smart lord of is that to from a 19th sentence. century commentary? I think that's from that big, huge Greek lexicon. Okay. Um, to lord over. Okay, so to lord over a prisoner to hand over a hand over. That <laughs> should be the hand over. Okay, so say it again with hand in it. To hand to over hand over a prisoner to a sentence. To give him up. You know, like yeah, the judge okay, saying, yeah, yeah. Because I could see I that. I think it's hand judge. over. It's not lord over. Yeah, that's got to be a typo. Over. It must have just been, I don't know. To hand over a prisoner to a sentence. Yeah. Uh, the, it also conveys a sense of abandonment. Um, yeah. Now now that's, that, that's what I get when I'm reading that. Yes. Yeah. That he had been protecting them, bearing with them, patient with them. And then finally, he removes his provisions from them. It's gone. It's yeah. kind of like Amos 4, where God says, 
you know, I allowed these, the, you know, I allowed your crops to dry up and I allowed the yeah. enemies to come in and, and I've, I allowed this and I allowed that. And did you not see that this is evidence that you needed to repent? And so, you know, yeah. here it's like, instead of giving his, uh, provisional, uh, providence to them to protect them, he backs away and just lets the universe take over and lets their own deeds, the consequences of their own deeds to fall upon their heads. So, yeah. but like he's sovereign. Penalty. He could, he could prevent it, but he chose not to prevent it. And in his choosing not to prevent it, it is as if he was, he was causing everything to happen. Yeah. Uh, I like the way the NLT translates it here. I think they do a pretty good job of bringing out the meaning behind the words. God let them go ahead and do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. Yeah, I that's the yeah, that's pretty good. That's a good way to bring it out. Um, he let them though. See, so he he permitted them. He in order for sin to happen in the universe, and this is what a lot of people. This is a problem a lot of people have with the idea of God is that in order for sin to happen, if you have an all-powerful God, he has to allow it to happen. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk a little more about that kind of stuff and think. Will um, we? Yeah, kind of with the fairness. I'd like to avoid that one. Right, just now, if you want to avoid that question. Well... No, I'll, we can handle it. I'll put out a solo But you mean it in it? Okay, oh, well. <laughs> just kidding. All right. Uh, I mean, if you didn't want to tackle the question. Challenge... Yeah, I mean, you answer that in Q and A every month. That's no, that's a piece of cake for you, man. You don't have to start. That's a piece of cake for you. Kissing uh, up to me now. Yeah. That. Uh, I do want to wrap this "God gave them up" section up with a couple quotes uh, for no other reason than I just I really like them. Um, J.D. Thomas kind of summed this up nicely. He said, "If you decide to depart from God, He's not going to send a league of angels to stop you. It will break His heart, but He will." let you go. I think that's mm-hmm. kind of the idea. God let these people go like the father of the prodigal son in Luke 15. You know, that father, he could have told his son, no, I'm not going to give you your inheritance because I'm not going to let you go and do that. That's stupid. But he let him go. Uh, and then C.S. Lewis also, now this one I really like, uh, talking about that scenario, uh, all of those who choose to forsake God unto death will enjoy forever the horrible freedom that they have demanded. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, I, I really wish I could like write that. like that. Yeah. Uh, in his book, The Great Divorce, I think it's where he says this, heaven is um, us saying to God, your will be done. Hell is God saying to us, your will be done. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, same thing. So this is his saying, your will be done. By the way, I found another example of this. Not not that I found it. I discovered it. I mean, it, it's known. But this type of language used by Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, where it says that God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I actually think that's a more difficult saying than than yeah. the one we're dealing with in Romans. That's active more so than passive. Yeah, but it's it's the same thing though. The yeah. because in verse eleven Paul says he, God sends them a strong delusion. The answer to it is in verse twelve. They did not believe the truth. That's yeah. what happened. 
So, but because yeah. he could have forced them to believe it, or like Thomas said, he could have sent angel legions of leagues of angels, whatever he said, yeah. to force them to know what's right. He could have given them a vision. He could have sent an angel. He didn't do that. He doesn't do that. But um, he does, and that leads us into our next one. If you're, I'm ready. You're finished. What yeah. does he give us? Like, how does he? He gives us enough. Yeah, he gives us plenty. And there's two things we want to mention here, and then there's a third thing that I want to mention when we get to apply. But the first okay. two things are, I mean, Paul spells them out for you. Uh, he says here in the, was it 18 through 23, really? And both of these, by the way, have to do with the Gentiles, interestingly enough, who yeah, seem to have be, the yeah, they don't have the law, so they seem to be at a disadvantage, and that's, Part of what Paul is dealing with here, because they can make the excuse, we didn't have the law, so we didn't sin. Where there's no law, there is no sin. Mm -hmm. And Paul says, wait a minute, maybe you don't have, you didn't have as high expectations, but there were some expectations because of these two things. Right. And these two things are, uh, uh, first of all, you have creation, and then secondly, we'll see that there's a sense of morality. So, I mean, right. even if you have no... And the question always comes up, well, what about people who never hear about God? What about people who never, you know, what happens to them? Well, this is, I mean, if, this is the passage to turn to if you're looking for information on that. Because you have this example of the Gentiles. You don't have the law. Here's what you do have. You have creation in the first place. Um, Which that, you know, he's talking about, Andrew's talking about, Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Yeah. His invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. In other words, they should not have committed idolatry, for example, which is one of the sins that he names. This is often referred to as general revelation as opposed to special revelation. General revelation would be the created world, the universe around us that we can look at and see. There has to be someone who designed it. There has to be someone who caused it. Special revelation would be the Word of God, where specifics are given about the one who created the world and his plan for mankind. Now, I don't know if I totally agree with what you say about... um, this fully handling the situation of somebody who's never heard the gospel. Oh, because, no. Well, maybe you know, being general. Qualified. Yeah, and I, I know what you mean. fully handles it, but it's a good place to go to to say, well, what did, you know, what are those people There is something. Go? Yeah, it's not like, what I mean to say when I say that is they're not just completely put in an unfair situation where they have no way of finding God unless, now that doesn't take any responsibility also, for us to go out into all the world and teach everybody to make sure there's few of those types right. of cases as right. possible. But at the same time, they're given that general revelation. Where they know at least general things, like the two examples given in the text, is God's eternal power and God's divine nature. Yeah. So those those two things have been clearly perceived. But the cross has not been clearly perceived. The death of Christ, the substitutionary nature of the death of Jesus Christ and heaven and hell and, right. you know, major things that have to be revealed through special revelation aren't yeah. given. But he's telling the Gentiles, you know, at this point before the cross, you weren't expected maybe to 
to obey the gospel. You weren't expected to be baptized. You weren't expected to love your neighbor as yourself, but you were expected to recognize the Creator. And whenever you bow down to a totem pole, you're not doing that. You're doing something that is intuitively foolish. Yeah. Something... And this is an argument, actually, it wasn't begun by Paul, but by David. Of course, it's all the Spirit here, but David said in Psalm 19, 1 and 2, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. That's the same thing, right? It's saying that they should have understood these attributes of God through what has been made. Yeah, David also... Uh, I guess predates Paul with this argument of he says they became fools and exchanged the glory uh, of God for mortal things. Well, everybody knows Psalm fourteen one. The fool says in his heart there is no God. Yeah. So I mean, we have very Psalm fourteen is uh, very similar to the description it of is. The Gentiles. Um, real quick, I don't know how much time we have for this. I've got a few, like uh, I guess cosmological things here like some stats on creation sure um, well let's let's get... point out that um, the art this is an argument that is used in the field of apologetics known as the cosmological argument yeah cosmos being the order of the universe and and basically it means that there is a cause to the effect which is the universe yeah the universe is not eternal. Therefore, something must have caused it. And cause and effect also gives you this idea that if there were ever a time when there was nothing, spiritual, physical included, just absolutely nothing, there would be nothing now. Because yeah. nothing comes from nothing. Yeah. If you think about that for a long time, it kind of blows your mind. But nothing produces nothing, Therefore, but there's something now. Therefore, there has to have been a, an, a cause, a cause yeah. to what we have today. Yeah, yeah, uh, so we have that law of cause and effect, and then here's the, I guess it's more so design than creation, because I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking through the terms of, you know, let's say I'm a Gentile in first century Rome, uh, you know, the place where Paul's writing this letter to. I'm a Gentile first century Rome. How do I know who God is, or that there is a God through the creation? Well, probably because I can figure out cause and effect, you know. If there's an effect, there needs to be a cause. So what was the first cause? Well, it has to be someone eternal, right? Yeah. And that's one of the things Paul mentions. Yeah. Something's got to be eternal. Something has to have these divine attributes that you mentioned a second ago that Paul mentions here. Um, and then I'm thinking, okay, well now, what, what else do I have? What can I determine about this divine nature from the creation? I think you can determine that there is certainly some intelligence behind it uh, through the design. And this is where you get into, you know, Paley's watch. That's, you know, I think that's something everybody's familiar with. William Paley was a guy that came up with this uh, argument of saying if you found a watch on the beach in the sand, you'd pick it up and you'd think, hmm, I wonder who made this watch. I wonder who designed it. And if a watch demands a designer... Was it complexity demands a designer? Is that the there's some catchphrase that goes with it? Uh, but if a watch is complex enough to lead you to the rational conclusion that hey somebody must have created this, this didn't just develop here from the sand, then 
naturally something infinite, infinitely more complex, like the universe, um, even specifically down to the Earth itself, that's got to demand a designer as well. Um, and here's a few, and I mean, even with the Gentiles, with their, you know, they didn't have all the advances of science that we have now. So I don't know the Gentile had any of these stats I'm about to read. But even the Gentiles still had enough to know that uh, there was a God with these kind of divine attributes. Uh, how much more so do we have now with this kind of science? I'm, I'm going to skip a lot of these numbers and just kind of give you the short notes here. Um, if the Earth were 10% closer or 10% further from the Sun, life would cease to exist in the Earth. That's a pretty small window of, um, I guess, of, of an area for the Earth to be to sustain life. Um, Earth's rotation on its axis in relation to the speed of the orbit around the sun. Okay, so here's a, oh, I'm trying to build these factors here so we can keep this in mind. This is probably kind of hard to do without seeing it in front of you if you're just listening. The Earth rotates at a certain speed around the equator. It moves around the sun at a certain speed. Now, the sun and the entire solar system move through space at a certain speed in an orbit. And that orbit is so long that it takes 22 million years just to complete a single orbit, according to the scientists out there. So, mm -hmm. Now, if Earth were off by one-eighth of an inch from that track of orbit, the whole thing falls apart. Hmm. So there you have this huge... I mean, a scale that's so big that you can't even think about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you really can't. You can't wrap your mind around how big that is. All those moving parts. Now, if you take planet Earth, in the grand scheme of things, a tiny, tiny, tiny planet. Now, if you move that by just one-eighth of an inch, which mm -hmm. is a tiny, tiny standard, according to us, who are on this tiny, tiny planet. I mean, so it's very, human, very... Human life is gone. Yeah. Yet you will find atheists who hear these arguments and say, yes, but given trillions of years, it could happen accidentally. I mean, so it just it comes down to it. I mean, I actually heard an atheist respond to this argument that way. And, you know, that's absurd. It's in, you know, statistician. Stat oh, man. Something. My brain told me People not to go for that word, yeah. but I did it statisticians yeah. will tell you that that is impossible. It is a rational impossibility. You know, I'm glad you can't. brought up statistics because I've got one for you. Okay. You want to hear this? Yeah. I see some numbers yeah. on your screen there. Yeah, it's a big number. If you, if you write a 100-word essay and then you mm -hmm. take all those words that you have in that essay and you jumble them up in a paper bag, plastic mm -hmm. bag, Ziploc bag, and then you dump those words out on a table, the odds of you having your essay in perfect form, the exact way you wrote it, is one out of 100 factorial. Now, what? I would encourage you, if you have a calculator, that's like 100 with an exclamation point after. You know, because that's, so that's 100 times 99 times 98, times 97, times oh, 96, times 94. That's some, some I mean, math I've never heard before. It's... Uh, yeah, it's a uh, well. I hope that's right. Oh goodness, I might have just got that. No, wrong. I'm sure. I'm sure it is. But I'm it's a hundred uh, exclamation point, which is I think is a hundred factorial. I hope okay. people that know math are listening to this and they're just laughing their heads <laughs> off right now. Um, 
but it's just you take it and you multiply it by every you know number in succession till you get down to one. You don't multiply mm-hmm. it by zero because then obviously it would be zero. But this number, folks, if you got a calculator, I would type it in on your calculator or just ask Google or Siri. They'll tell you. Um, but this number takes up four lines on my notes I have here in front of me. And I'm just in the standard 11 font Calibri here in Microsoft Word. And it takes up four lines. It's huge. I'm not even going to bother to try and count how many sets of zeros there are because it's way too many. But, I mean, it's ridiculous. Those are the chances that a 100-word essay would accidentally form itself. One out of that number that takes up Okay, so what does that matter? Why? Well, here's why that matters. Because if a 100-word essay has that low of a probability of working, I mean, Uh you could try that every day until you died and you wouldn't. You would never see that 100-word essay right. happen. Yeah. So if just with that, I mean, we're talking 100 words. How many moving parts, how many variables are there in the entire universe? Mm-hmm. And so what's your probability then? Your prob- Exponentially more than, than that number. Yeah, your probability is going to be like There's uh, more than 100 millions moving parts. of pages long just to fill the yeah. number or to yeah. fit the number. So, the, I mean, the probability, common sense... I mean, so we could look around at the complexity of life, as the Gentiles could have looked around at the same thing. But we've got a lot and deduce. Yeah, yeah, we the more we learn, the the more the we more ought to we be point to God. Yeah, the, everything we learn points to God. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And I think sometimes Christians are afraid of science because they're afraid that somebody's going to find something to prove the Bible wrong. But I, we we've been. Science There's been true. enough discovered now to know that's not going to happen. All that's going to do is just going to point us closer and closer to God if our hearts are open to that thing. Now, before we run out of time, we've got to look at the moral argument stuff, too. Right. Because that's just as strong as the, you know, cosmological. And I would yeah. classify what you've been talking about as a teleological argument or the argument from design. So here's the third one. Coming from chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Uh, he's talking to the Jews by this point, but he brings up the Gentiles again. And he says, When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And then he talks about on the day uh, of judgment. So here's what he's saying generally, and then I want to break this down. Generally, he's telling the Jews that the Gentiles have the law written on their hearts already. They instinctively know that it's wrong to murder, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to commit adultery. You should love your neighbor as yourself. They instinctively know that you should love God. Who created the world around them without having the law of Moses codify it the way that it has. Now, maybe yeah. there's some details in there and specifics regarding punishment they don't get, but they basically know morality by virtue of being born a human being. Yeah, everybody has a conscience. Right. He names three things that they have. Yeah. And uh, the first thing, verse 15, is the law written on their hearts. So that's morality. They have morality. They have this knowledge that I spoke of already. The second thing is the conscience. I think that's something 
that we can distinguish from morality because yeah. morality is what is right and wrong. The conscience doesn't necessarily tell you what is right and wrong. It urges you to do what you think is right or wrong. Makes you feel obligated to do the right thing. Or makes you feel guilty when you violate what you know is right or wrong. It's not always right, uh, the conscience. And we know that example of Paul when he says in Acts 23.1, I've lived my life in, with a good conscience up to this day. That would include the time when he was persecuting Christ. Right. You know, he was wrong, but he was following his conscience. He was doing what he thought he ought to do. So when the conscience was pulling him in that direction because of how it had been programmed, he did it even though it was wrong. Yeah. So a conscience needs to be coupled with the knowledge of right and wrong, the morality written on your heart. And then the third thing is common sense. Their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So you have the ability to think rationally, and that ought to help you make good decisions as well. Yeah. So if we're just the result of rocks and dirt that evolved into monkeys and eventually us by accident, without a designer behind the whole thing, how in the world did all of that become planted into our wiring? How in the world did we come to instinctively know right and wrong, to have a conscience, which is a spiritual thing, and to have common sense and rationality itself? Which, if you think about it, the chances of that evolving are, again, we're getting back into what we were saying a while ago, exponentially higher against that evolving than yeah than you know the eyeball evolving you yeah. know it's one thing to say something physical like an eyeball or a hand or a foot could evolve or an organ or a blood system but then to, i think it's a notch higher to think of something spiritual evolving where yeah. does all this come from let me back that up not just something spiritual but something that is universally spiritual a spiritual characteristic of human beings. Yeah. How do you explain that? You know, you can't really measure morality by science. You know, you can right. you can measure, like you said, an eye, an arm, a leg, a foot, whatever. Human well, body. I don't know. You could you could go around and poll human beings from all over the world. Yeah, and but you could go I to guess... Europe and say, should is it okay for me to kill somebody if I want what he has? Yeah, and they'll say no. And you go down to Africa. Is it okay for me to kill somebody if I want what he has? No. Australia, same thing. United States, same thing. India, same thing. Now, people are violating this, yeah. but even the people who violate it say they did wrong. They know they did wrong. Yeah. And some of them feel bad about it, and some of them have violated their consciences to the yeah. point they don't feel bad about it. So, scientifically, you could poll them like that and find yeah. that without explanation, except for what we're reading here, that God did it, somehow... The whole universe of humanity believes the same things about fundamental moral principles. Yeah, I think it's different. Like you were saying, it's not a it's not a physical thing. You know, this is not. It's it's more difficult to show that this has evolved rather than just something physical. And you mentioned, you know, the body. It's more, yeah, yeah. and I think it's more difficult because, and yeah, you can poll and see what opinions are. But it is more difficult for science to prove that this has evolved, uh, or for, I guess, sociologists, that's their job, to try and prove mm-hmm. that it's an evolved trait or whatever. But it's more difficult because you cannot put your sense of morality in a you know in a test tube. I mean, you can throw people in a situation and, and observe their behavior, but you can't really 
know, determine, well, how, why did people develop a sense of morality? Because if survival, which is just what all evolutionists teach, you know, survival is the only instinct. Natural selection, yeah. Yeah, that's the only thing that really matters. Well, morality gets in the way of survival all the time. Now, I agree with you, but for the sake of our listeners, I want everybody to know that Andrew and I both have heard the evolutionary argument that morality is something that evolved because somehow it helps survival. Yeah, like, but that, you know, that's what I'm trying to say is it It doesn't though. Yeah, I want to and see Darwin is one of the first on all that. Yeah, Darwin's one of the first to have said that, you know, it's I think his exact quote is, you know, helping the poor and doing things for the sick and doing things for the weaker members of our society is, and here's the quote Highly injurious to the race of man. End quote. So what he's saying here is all of this, all these moral feelings don't really fit into survival of the fittest or natural yeah. selection. And, uh, you know, now again, we know that evolutionary scientists argue that it does, but it doesn't. Yeah, you know, I and this is a that. this isn't even a scientific argument. This is this is a philosophical, metaphysical right discussion that scientists really are not equipped to have. But um, you know, this is something that you know nowadays they just throw it out there. You know, we've evolved love, we've evolved uh, help and altruism yeah. and all this stuff. But that you know, I don't buy it. I don't know if our listeners buy it, but it's certainly not something that. That I accept. I just yeah don't it's, think it's hard to accept it. I think it's one of the few things I agree with Darwin on. Yeah, that if you accept evolution, you have to reject the idea of the necessity of morality to the human race. Yeah. Well, we spent a lot of time thinking. Um, yeah. We'll come back in a second, and we'll spend a few minutes applying. some of the things that we've talked about in our reading and draw out practical applications for today. The first one is the overall message of chapters 1 through 3, which is the bad news has to come before the good news. Um, you know, gospel is a word that means good news. Yep. We like to focus on that. That, of course, is what our emphasis ought to be. Jesus said, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. But we have to say that other part, that Jesus said, which was the world was condemned already. Yeah. And if people don't understand that bad news, that they are sinful, then they're not going to be interested in the good news. I mean, if it, everything's already good, you're not looking for good news. Yeah, why do I need a Savior? Exactly. Number two, God's wrath. Wait, we were going to say it this way. God is righteous. Yeah. God is righteous. Yeah, and we, we decided to word it that way because... The point of what we're getting at here is exactly the same question that Paul asks in chapter 3, in verse 5. He says, Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. So that's the question. Right. You know, yeah. here comes the wrath. You need a Savior. Well, you got people like 
Dan Barker, who's one of the you know atheist guys going around debating folks. I don't know if he still does it. Used to be pretty popular. Uh, he goes around saying, "Well, even if there is a God, I think he's unjust because no mm-hmm. God would do what this God does to people." Yeah, that's sending them to hell. That's kind of the latest atheistic rant. Of course, uh, people have been doing that since uh, Bertrand Russell's essay, "Why I Am Not a Christian." Yeah, you know, talking about criticizing Jesus for casting demons into pigs. You know, I wouldn't want to about the pigs. Wouldn't want to wouldn't want to serve somebody who threw pigs into the sea. But uh, well, we got Paul here refuting that argument. How many years before that he says, "Well, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath?" By no means. God is righteous, and part of that nature, the righteous nature, means you can't be associated with sin. Sin has to be bad. I mean, we sin by its very nature, by its very definition, is something that is wrong. It's contrary to that morality that we spent some time building up in the last section. So uh, we have God's wrath as a part of his righteousness. And that's why we've worded this as God is righteous. Because look at what Paul says. He really does answer this for us. How could God judge the world? So, I mean, if God were unrighteous to inflict wrath, how could he judge the world? How could he get rid of sin? How could he get rid of those things that he accuses the Gentiles of uh, in the first chapter, you know, being uh, deceitful, malicious, for, full of murder, gossip, slander, all those things. Uh, if he wasn't wrathful, he wouldn't be holy. If he didn't have wrath against sin, here's here's a pretty good definition. God's wrath is not a capricious, impulsive, arbitrary outburst of anger, but rather it is the settled determination, or excuse me, the settled determined response of a holy God against sin. Yeah. I mean, that's good. Let's go to number three. Number three is the practice of homosexuality is sinful. And this is the hot-button issue of our times. Um, For some reason, it has come to the fore uh, while other sins have been pushed backwards. Uh, I worded that very carefully to say the practice of homosexuality because in chapter one, when it's described, it is described as dishonoring bodies and exchanging natural relations for those things that are contrary to nature and giving up natural relations with women and being consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. You know, there's no doubt he's talking about homosexuality there, but he's not just talking about same-sex attraction, but the practice of homosexuality. And I guess I want to encourage some people that may be struggling with that same-sex attraction to say that he's not condemning the temptation. You know, even the Lord was tempted but he's condemning the the giving in to the temptation. And so, you know, as Christians, we're not denying that there are people that have same-sex attraction. Right. So I don't have to deal with the argument, I was born this way. You know, that's that's the main argument that's being made today is, I was born this way, therefore I can act this way. You know, a lot of us deal with different temptations. Um, The Lord is asking us to behave in a certain way and to live a certain kind of life. And that includes, you know, what we do intimately with partners. Um, he's condemned a lot of uh, heterosexual yeah. activity as well. And basically, he has confined sexual activity to a man and a woman in a marriage relationship that honors Christ. Right. Which is very specific. 
And I know that disappoints a lot of people, but you can be disappointed. Just please don't try to say that the New Testament condones same-sex marriage or same-sex practices. Uh, you can argue with the Bible all you want, but don't try to make the Bible argue your point. That just really doesn't suffice. And there's so much more to say about that topic, and maybe we'll run into it again as we come sure through we the Bible, uh, because yeah. it is addressed many times throughout the Old and the New Testaments, but we're running out of time, so let me move on to point numero four. God's kindness is for repentance. This comes from chapter two, verse four. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is not to make you feel comfortable or to condone your actions, but it is meant to be uh, something that is an incentive for you to change your ways. Yeah. Which, that goes along with Second Peter 3, 9. God, the Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I think that's a parallel passage to this one. Yeah. I think this goes hand in hand with what Paul says in chapter 2 about circumcision being a matter of the heart. Right, And yeah. those who are Jews who are Jews inwardly. God's kindness is meant to lead you to that kind of change, to that circumcision of the heart. You know, right. it's not meant to get you to change your, you know, just your your actions like the law. And I think that's where, uh, that's where you know, we're going to see later that God did what the law could not do um, through the sacrifice of Jesus. And that kind of leads us to this idea here of, getting people to understand that this is about your heart changing, not just the outward things changing. You know, I think a, the direct application here for us is we think Christianity is a list of, I got to go to church on Sunday. I got to go to church on Wednesday. I got to go to these events. I got to give money. I got to not wear these kinds of clothes and maybe too revealing. I can't watch these kind of movies. You know, we just moralism. Think yeah. Yeah. We think of it as outward displays. Mm -hmm. But if the inward change is not there, then the outward display is pointless. Uh, I think a good example, circumcision is a great example. Another good example is a wedding ring. Uh, if you have a wedding ring, that does not necessarily make you married. Mm -hmm. You know, you have the outward sign that people can look at you if you're wearing a wedding ring and say, oh, that person must be married. Mm -hmm. They have the ring. There's the outward show. But you could slap a wedding ring on any random person that's not married. And just because they're wearing the ring does not make them married. It's more about the relationship than it is the piece of jewelry. And it's the same way with our devotion to Christ. You know, our relationship with Christ is more about the actual relationship than it is the outward display of our relationship. Right. Well said. Um, one more one more lesson here before we close. Number five on our list, and that is our hypocrisy brings reproach upon God, and I would add God's people and upon yourself as an individual Christian. Yeah. And this is in that scathing rebuke that Paul issues to the Jews in chapter 2, verse 24. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Your hypocrisy has caused them to point at God's religion and say, it's not real, it's fake, it's yeah. false, it's a pretense, it's, you know, 
this ties in well with the last point that we made. Mm-hmm. And all of that is uh, very, you know, hurtful to God. And, yeah. you know, I think I think you said a minute ago, don't be a reason for people to blaspheme God. Yeah. Um, don't be a stumbling block to others because of your hip- hypocrisy. Yeah, because if somebody knows that you wear the name of Christ and they see you doing something just... That, that's not Christ-like. Yeah, that's just flat out wrong. Uh-huh. They see you, I don't know, uh, cheating. I'm thinking of teenagers. If there's any teenagers out there, some of this. Somebody sees you cheating on a test in school and they know you wear the name of God. I mean, they're thinking, maybe they know that that's wrong. Maybe they know God doesn't condone that kind of thing. Or maybe they don't, and they're thinking, okay, well, that person follows God and he cheats. God must be a cheater, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the line that we're looking at here with the Gentiles. They saw what the Jews were doing. They saw how they were so corrupt and uh, you know, they associated the treachery of the Jews with God and wrongly applied that treachery to God Himself. How much time do we have left? We got a little bit. Okay, here's a perfect example. Uh, Pliny the Younger was a was a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Lawyer. Governor. He's a lawyer. Maybe mm-hmm. not thinking of Pliny the Younger. There's a governor. His name is Pliny. Maybe it's not this particular Pliny. Governor named Pliny. Um, for the Romans in the first century, second century. Uh, he gets a lot of complaints about Christians in his area. Uh, people are coming to him saying, hey, these Christians got to leave. And, you know, we think of Christian persecution as, uh, you know, being done wrongfully. But I want to I challenge a little bit of your thinking on that. Think, Put yourself in the shoes of Pliny. He's a governor. He gets news that, hey, there are these Christians out here. Here's what they're doing. They are killing children in their worship. They're taking people's kids and they're killing them. Some of them their own kids, some of them other people's kids. They're also committing these types of sexual acts that are really so bad, I'm not going to mention them here in this podcast. They're just, I mean, disgusting. Uh, now, they're telling, this is what Pliny's hearing. Pliny doesn't know anything else about Christians. Now, these were a group of Christians that we now refer to as Gnostic Christians. Uh, they had some really weird practices. But if you're Pliny and you have a group of people like that, what are you going to do with them? You're going to get rid of them. So if you put yourself in Pliny's shoes, examining Christians from, you know, that standpoint of this is what I know about them. Because of that pocket of Christians, the name of Christ has been slandered everywhere. You know, when people hear Christian, they think of killing children. They think of all these horrible things. And that just goes to show you the weight of responsibility you have on your shoulders. Especially when there are Christ. people who want to think that anyway. Yeah. You know, they, they, you know, Peter spends a lot of time on this in his first epistle. Don't give them room to accuse you. If you suffer for doing wrong, or, you know, that's nothing to, to glorify God about. But if you suffer for doing right, glorify God for that, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, Behave honorably before the Gentiles so that, you know, they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So yeah. all of that is very important to think about. Well, that's about all the time that we've got, and we're thankful to you for joining us and being with us on this podcast. Uh, continue to follow us. We're going to be studying Romans for a while, and we're just getting started. There's some really deep stuff, as this podcast hopefully has demonstrated to you. And I hope that you'll be able to see as we continue on throughout the rest of the podcast. Uh, keep in track with us online, the66.net. 
Um, also, uh, at the 66 Podcast on Twitter. Uh, we got a Facebook page. Go over there and like it. Spread the word about us that way. And write us a review. Yeah, write those reviews. We are now listed number three when you search the 66 podcast. Yeah, we've moved up. I don't know why. You know, I don't understand any of that, but I do know that reviews and ratings help. So if you can, find the time to do it and you can figure it out. Go over there and do that for us. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.